Hello, friends. Thank you for joining us for this fourth episode of Genuine. I'm butting in early this time to tell you a few key things. Today's episode was recorded and created four years ago. So you might notice that I mentioned my kiddo being a toddler. Oh, oh, and hey, while I'm on that subject, I just wanted to be transparent about what I shared in last week's episode, my quote wrestling hack with my kiddo. Yeah, well, it worked great the day I recorded the podcast. (laughs) And it's been kind of rough ever since. So just goes to show it's never possible to have everything figured out. But hey, for today, the conversation I had with Tejuma Uguma, a good friend of mine, may have happened four years ago, but the potency of the power of listening is still true. And that's why I wanted to share this episode with you right now. So wherever you are, however you're doing, give yourself the next chunk of time to slow down and just listen. Welcome. I'm Sarah Lipton, and this is Genuine, the podcast. Produced and created by the community at genuinenetwork.org. Genuine. Authentic. Genuine. <laughs> uh, genuine. 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 Genuine? <laughs> genuine. Good morning, listeners. Thanks for joining us today for The Power of Listening. We're going on a little journey today to Bamako, Mali, West Africa, to visit my good friend, Tejumo Guma. Hang in there with the accent and the sound quality. Our conversation was over Skype. But first, as you settle in to listen, we'll take our usual pause to stop and just be. Feel your feet on the earth. Feel the strength of your back, the softness of your belly, the uprightness of your head and shoulders. Just be for a few moments. Good. Thank you. Carlton. Hey there, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm really good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. It's good to good to talk with you. You too. What's on your mind today? 
Well, I'm wondering, I, I was thinking about this, and this probably comes out of the way that I do therapy people or with people. Um, I'm wondering, have you had any good interactions this past week or so that have left a impact on you or left you thinking? Oh, definitely. First thing that pops to mind is my daughter. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's full of all the traditional, typical irritations, but also pretty remarkable. And in fact, this past week, we hit quite a powerful transition point. All of a sudden, she started stringing more than one word together. Oh, wow. And that meant that we could actually talk about how she was feeling. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I it's feel like we're on the brink of a whole new relationship in a way. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Look at one word, what one word will do. It'll change yeah. your relationship, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always find it fascinating to hear parents talk about how in the early stages of their child's development, things change so fast. Oh, yeah. Um, and it affects you so tremendously. It's huge. It's huge. Well, what about you? We do outreach on campus. And so I was doing something um, over the weekend with some um, LGBTQ students. And we were talking about their leadership for their student groups. And the presentation was really on how do they talk about race while also being sexual minority and gender diverse people. And just watching the students take notes on this presentation and really engage in the conversation, I left feeling like, yeah, this is this is why I do this. This yeah. is really, really profound to have students on a Saturday afternoon taking notes about something that's really difficult and talking about how they want to go back and change their personal lives and their lives with their family and, and friends and other students. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue because that's actually a lot of how I felt about my conversation with Tejumo Oguma. Mm. Okay. He's an old friend of mine. We've been practicing meditation together at various programs and retreats for probably a decade and he's someone who has always been incredibly inspiring to me, but I have to admit we'd never had a deep conversation before. When we had this interview over Skype, he was in Mali, I was here in Vermont, I think my jaw hit the floor a few times. Uh-huh. There were many, many moments where I was like, wow, I never knew that about you, and my goodness, uh-huh. I always knew you were amazing, but goodness. Uh-huh. And I think the theme in a way, you know, having re-listened to the conversation, I think was those moments where he really listened. Uh He demonstrated that he was able to listen and really make space for the people he's working with. Uh You know, he's someone who's doing work for his government in another country, spending time away from his family, but doing work that's powerfully beneficial to people who need that work. And, And it seems the way that he's doing it is through listening. Wow. That's pretty fascinating. I guess in some ways it makes me ready to listen to the interview. And I'm hoping that the listeners will also be listening to how the interview affects you. Not only what Tejumo says, but how it affects you.
My name is Tijumo Guma. I'm right now in Mali, working for the Canadian government in charge of food security program in Mali, focusing on rural development, irrigation, and training for farmers. And luckily, in my programs, most farmers are women cooperative, so we really help them improve the value chain from production, storage, to uh, exporting the goods that these women produce. So it's really a good chance to, to be here to work with them. In terms of who I am, to say a little bit, I'm in, I'm in Mali for two years. As you know, my hometown is Ottawa. So this is, you know, kind of like for me, an extension of my job to be in Mali for two years uh, to do this project, and then I'll go back to Ottawa. So I was wondering if you could just say, you know, where did you grow up and, and what has been your journey to get to this point? You know, I grew up in uh, West Africa in a country called Benin. And uh, the good thing about Benin is that uh, it's, it's a new country. It, was, uh, um, it became independent in the 60s. And my dad was part of the independence movement. So I think growing up in my family... I've seen my dad and my mom being trailblazers, like they're the first people in their family to go to school, to go to university, to have great jobs, and to just have that openness to say, the world doesn't stop in Benin. There's much more to it. And they also wanted me to discover that. So that always helped. So for me, when I was growing up, there's always that, there was always that moment where they would say, these are our traditions. We will teach you our tradition. We will give you, we will expose you to our religion. But there's much more to it. And you have to, we want you to know that there's much more to it than this, what you're living in. And I also remember my dad telling me, you know, when growing up, he said, well, you know, you're really lucky. You know, when you go to school, we drive you, like you have a driver to go to school. But when we were going to school, like my dad, his generation, we walk for six kilometers. So things are different for you. So I was really made um, early on to realize those things, so that where I was coming from. So that really helped. So I you know, grew up in Benin, uh, lived there for 13 years. And my dad, after that, got a job at the UN. So the whole, our whole family moved to New York City. My first jump into the extreme of individualism, materialism, consumerism, you can do whatever you want. And that was fun. And living in New York, my dad also pushed, you know, to take piano lessons, take basketball lessons, take lessons, discover. I did that for four years. And when, by the time I was 16, I went to boarding school in France. And when I was ready for university, I had a, my older sister was living in Canada. And my older brother was in France. And my dad looked at me and he said, so where, where do you want to go to university? And I said, oh, France, U.S. or Canada. And he said, you know, my son, that's a good idea. But we're in 1988. You should explore more. And he said, you know, why don't you go to China? Why don't you go to Russia? Why don't you go to Germany? And then I said, why would I go there? And he said, well, because these three countries are historically changing so much and if you go there you would discover a new world and you can always go back to the u.s and france because these are democracy they won't change but russia china and um, germany will change completely if you go there 
So I look at my options and I went to Russia for five years. I lived in Russia for five years and I did live in Perestroika, Glasnost. I learned Russian language for a year, then went to university. So I came out of Russia and I was 23. So I went into a, it's kind of like I lived the era. I went to communism, Soviet Union, and I came out of Russia and the whole world in five years just completely changed. A lot of my colleagues from East Germany who were living in Russia left. So, you know, like it was just the whole change. So I went through that. That also gave me, at that point in my life, the fact that, you know, you can have a really big country system and the whole thing can fall apart and change. And in five years, I've seen people first telling me, we live in the best country in the world. We have everything. We're better than the U.S., and five years after, you see them on the street selling their goods, selling everything that they have, selling their bodies because they're poor. And I've seen that. I've witnessed that. Uh, so that was a, a really interesting experience for me. And after that, I moved to, you know, I went to Canada. I moved to Canada to do my master's degree. And I went to Montreal and been living in Canada for the last 20 years. Although I, I did take one year and a half off in Canada to work in Afghanistan for also for the Canadian government. I was in charge of health and education in Canada, in a war zone, in a difficult situation, but really with impoverished, you know, people, men, women who have nothing, who are going through a war, uh, who live in extreme, extreme, I would say, discriminating society toward women. Uh, And you have to, you know, you just, you're the face of Canada you have to sit down with them and try to help them. So that also, you know, kind of opened my eyes to a different uh, dimension of life. What, what does it mean, right? Because when I was going to Afghanistan, I have to ask myself, what, what are you going to achieve? And how do you talk and exchange with people who, women who are wearing burqa? Well, what do you do? And, and it's, it's really, you know, but I think I went with uh, the idea that, you know, these are human beings, so I'll find common ground with them. I'll find something to, to do with them. I'm sure we'll have, you know, something in common. So I was wondering if you, you know, I mean, I've known you for a while, you know, maybe 10 years or so. And I know you as a sparkly person. <laughs> you know, we've always connected around inspiration and different perspectives and connecting in a very deep kind of way. Yeah, I think the, f- the first thing that I would say is that, uh, you know, uh, in being in Mali for only one month, I just realized one thing is that I am, and a lot of people, I just realized that we are really lucky. And the, the, the first reason we're lucky is that I think that, you know, just to be alive, this is an extraordinary experience. But, but on top of that, I feel that I've been really lucky you know, not only have I traveled in North America in, and lived in North America, uh, you know, Canada, U.S., in Europe, in France, in Russia, and, and now in Mali. So I've been, always been exposed to a lot of people from different walks of life. So I realized and always realized that I was really privileged and I was healthy. And over the years, I realized that I met really, like I had really good friends. So that is not something that I take lightly. But, but the second thing is that as I realized that I'm, I'm privileged and happy, 
and have always, you know, like uh, uh, amazing people around me. Not everybody has that. And that has always been something for me is to, you know, a lot of people don't have that. And just being here in Mali for four weeks, I just realized that, I mean, Sarah, you wouldn't imagine the suffering, how life is so hard for people here. So that is, has always made me think about it, but now more so. And there's that, but also like, you know, being who I am, I realized that I have to grow as a human being. I realized that I have emotions. I realized that there are part of me that are different or don't fit in. And my promise to myself has always been, how do I make sure that I grow and stay authentic to myself? not betray myself, but, you know, have that uh, open heart and cultivate it in front of chaos, in front of suffering, instead of things that are really different from what I expect or what I am. So I think I've made that promise to myself and um, spirituality helped a lot in that, in keeping that promise of who I am. But what also helped is my work because it has exposed me to Many people, you know, from group of women, they produce something for six months and the next six months they have to start. And suddenly I'm in a position to kind of decide how we can help them, how we can make sure that these women work, take care of their families, but also take care of their groups. So these things have always been part of my life. And I think uh, for me, it's always been I'm human, so I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes but how do I grow and how do I keep a connection with people? So I think that's kind of like a thread that kept me going on and kept me kind of leaping to new situations where I often find myself without any resources or without reference of anything. It's just new, right? A good example is, you know, I live in Mali. This is Africa. I'm African. But when I go out, people do speak a different language from me, right? And I have to relate to them. Where I grew up in a Christian, uh, you know, um, setting, and I'm a Buddhist. So it's just like kind of how do I understand all this in, in this context where people can tell you like, oh, my wife is not going out and we're having our 10th child. And how do you remain present without judging and understand the experience. So these are things that are, for me, they come up every day, and I really have to be careful not to judge and careful to listen, and also, in a way, respect my own differences that I bring to the table. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. I mean, that is so much of the journey of being human in a diverse world. (laughs) Yes. One thing about my life has been a movement of migration living from one culture to another, uh, being uprooted, uh, learning a new culture, seeing a culture from the outside. I live in places where I was always the minority, and, but also have to adapt. So this is something that I've learned early on. It just opened my eyes. I just understand that uh, I can be a human being anywhere. And basically, you meet people if you take time and you're willing to kind of spend time with people, you will find something in common with them. Yeah. Like, what does it feel like? You know, like, bring us into a moment when you're sitting down and meeting someone that you 
at first glance have no idea how to connect with? What's, what does it feel like? Like, what is it, what's the atmosphere like? What, like bring us right into a moment of meeting someone that you wind up then finding a way to connect with. I always find that, uh, and myself included, we always feel like, you know, I feel like, oh, I'm Tejumo, I'm, I'm this one person. But my experience really is that each and every one of us, we come with who we are physically, our language, our stories, pain, love, eyes, gaze, how we look at people and all these things. So I remember one woman were in Afghanistan and this woman wanted to start a small trade for her family. And it was really like really something really simple. She wanted us to give her money to buy goods. And we funded her, uh, you know, really a small amount, maybe $10,000. And after a year, she decided to come and meet me uh, at my office because I was not allowed to go out. And, you know, the appointment was at 10 a.m., but she came at, I think, at 11. So there I was sitting and in a camp full of Canadian people and this woman walks in with her burqa, all right? You know, from exchanging on an email to meeting the person in real life. And, of course, I stand up and I wait, not knowing if I should extend my hand or not. And I'm waiting, you know, to see what she would do. And all of a sudden, you have her husband uh, walking next to her, you know, extending his hand. Then there's a shock of me being there and the whole life and culture of Afghanistan coming to that moment where, uh, yes, I'm representing Canada. Yes, she spoke to you on email. But in this moment, you're not addressing her directly and you cannot. And so, you know, so we went into a room when we got into her room, then she took, you know, part of her burqa out and she said, uh, listen to Jumo, it's nice to meet you. Uh, the conversation is that you're going to talk to my husband and he's going to talk back to you and I'm going to talk to him. So it was a three-way conversation. But, what was, but once I accepted that, you know, this is the way the conversation will go, we're all able to relax in mm-hmm. that distance and to to talk and she was really lovely and you know even when she was not talking to me directly i can feel her power i can feel that she was in charge she knew what she was doing her husband was there but he was just the mouth and in a way i also felt that her husband was protecting her right because she wouldn't have been able to walk outside alone as a woman and be protected without her husband she wouldn't have been able to come to a camp to meet another man without her husband. And for her husband to decide to be there with her, that's a sign of protection. And to say, I'm supporting my wife and she's doing something worthwhile. So it's just in that moment that I felt, oh my God, yes, he, she's not talking, but in a way, he's kind of giving, you know, he's a conduit of her will. And that was really beautiful. And, you know, and I just really discussed with them and asked questions. And we had a conversation and she explained what she's doing. And she was really business savvy. And that was really good to, to, to see. And we just exchanged. And, you know, she asked me if I was Muslim. And I said, no, I'm not Muslim. But uh, a lot of my, my friends are. I grew up with a lot of Muslim. And, you know, it's not a big difference. So it's not an issue for me. 
So it's just with that openness and asking questions and letting them, not being fussy about you know, the social rules, we establish that openness. And you can see the, this woman was really open and, and she would talk a little bit about her life, how many goods she has. And that's one example of situation. You meet someone and you meet the whole society. I always go with a space of openness. Like I need to give my colleagues, my partners, like five minutes of openness for them to relax, find their bearings and start a conversation with me. The first thing that I want to know is who are you? What's your story? Why are you doing this? Who are you going to benefit? What are the names? That's what I want to know first. And then after that, I want to know, you know, where you live, what you do, what it look like. Can I come and visit? Can I take pictures? Would you allow me? Is it possible? Those things come after. You are a revolutionary <laughs> in the sense that your, your starting point, these very um, potent situations, is openness. And, and from the openness, as you said, the relaxation can occur and then a meeting of minds and then a project can actually happen. Absolutely. This is very different than um, a lot of other models out there that kind of go in brute force and say, we've got an idea for you and we're going to fix things for you. It's like there's no openness, there's no listening involved in that model. And, oh, it's just really good to hear <laughs> that this is you know, this is what you're able to do. And it sounds like you are in a position of, of some power and being able to represent the Canadian government in these very challenged places. It's very amazing. I mean, I wonder, what do your colleagues think? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a really an interesting place. For some people, I think what I sense sometimes is the inability to be open to the suffering of other people. Because when we sense the suffering of other people, our tendency is to fix it. But I realize that I cannot fix it. I can witness, I can accompany, I can support. And because I know that that's only the thing that I can do, it's easier for me to be open to say, yes, I know you just, you lost your, your parents. When you are close yourself, you are afraid of people suffering. You tend to be a little bit distant and kind of put yourself in that armor and, you know, oh, it's like business-like. Right. But for this business to work, you have to connect with them because otherwise it, it doesn't work. Uh, for example, when I was working, I, was, uh, I had a project in Cambodia. And in Cambodia, our project was really on landmines. We had a mandate, Canada has a, a mandate to train Cambodians to remove mines from the field. And once the, the mines were removed, we would transform the field into... Uh, hospital, schools, gardens, everything. But I, you know, I travel from, uh, a, from Ottawa to Phnom Penh in Cambodia. When 90% of my beneficiaries were all um, disabled, you know, because they all walk on landmines and they're missing an arm. And even children, right, five years old. Mm. And the moment I got out of the car, I just look at it and I'm like, wow, I can't believe. But then, you know, offering my openness to listen to these incredible, incredible people telling me, you know, we really thank you because with your money, I'm able to go to school. My children, they have food now. So it's to listen to them and not think that because they're missing a limb, they're not capable. No, they are. They know what they're doing. So I think 
I never feel that they're lesser than I am. And I never feel that they're missing something. They may, they may be missing tools and knowledge, but as human beings, they're not missing something. And there's the reason we're meeting. And for me, it's to just go with the flow and find out how we can come with something and just respect that they have something to bring to the table, whether I like it or not. It's, this is so important. This is so important to Jomo. Yeah. I'm really thrilled to be able to share your voice with listeners because I, I think it's really, really important what you're saying. You know, one interesting experience that I had is that when I was in Afghanistan, I lived on a military base with military people. So my daily life is people being bombed, people dying and coming back. So the type of suffering that I was exposed to was really extreme, right? This is extreme suffering. So imagine me, I experienced that for a year where things are really, it's trauma, right? So I came back to Canada and my friends, it's like, I'm really angry because I didn't get the promotion. I'm really angry because I didn't buy the, the newest car. I need the new computer. My bag is not beautiful. My husband, he was leaving me. So imagine me, the first week of that, I was just like, oh my God, I can't you know, deal with this. These people are so selfish. These people are bad. But pretty soon, I realized, and I'm like, okay, Tejumo, suffering comes in many ways. Maybe this person doesn't have a new Gucci bag, but the feeling of suffering is the same. Right. It's no different from losing your life, losing a limb, not having food. It's the same. It's important for them. It's something that they want and they're not having. And I feel really blessed to have realized that early on. So when I realized that, I'm like, okay, so people can complain about silly things and that's fine. We are going all to the same thing, right? It, they're not dying, but... You know, they're, they're not buying vegetarian food. It's too expensive. Or they're not going to their favorite restaurant. And they went to a restaurant and they can get in to get their favorite food. Yes, it's luxury. But feeling of suffering is the same. And I think what I've learned is to appreciate this and not judge. Because had I judged these people, I wouldn't be able to connect to them or have a relationship. Because I would find that they're selfish, privileged and, you know, my role is not to insult people because they're privileged. I feel that my, my contribution is to say, because we're privileged, maybe there's more that we can do. But I'm not going to force them to do that. And that's something that I learned coming back from Afghanistan, because I wouldn't have known this, that this was important. Right. Yeah, there is no uh, worse suffering. Suffering is suffering is suffering. For, for different reasons, right? right. And it, right. it's all okay. And it's, we can tell people, don't complain because you're so rich. It's, yeah, it's silly from our point of view, but from their point of view, it's painful. And we know that. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about maybe just your aspirations for your time in Mali and what you're sort of hoping to achieve while you're there and if you have any specific things you want to share with listeners. Yeah, I think... You know, uh, next year, I would want the farmers that I work with to be able to produce more and to showcase what they're producing. That's something that I want to push and to happen. And I want more of the farmers of beneficiary to have access to water, which they don't, but we're helping them to do that. But more than that, 
I realized that I would not be successful in my posting, in my mandate, if I don't have people that I understand and that I trust. I need to have some of them on my side. So it's too early, but my aspiration is to have people that I really trust, that I can work with, that they can help me kind of work with my partners better. But sometimes, you know, there are a lot of barriers, right? People are there because they want something out of you. But I hope that I will meet people that are really genuine and that are passionate, that I can really work with. That's really important. So, you know, good human contact that can make my work easier and can help me understand because it's really it's really important if not you know i'm going to rest on you know what i think is good but i also want to sense what's good and what people are saying right what's what message the village is giving me i want to listen to that i want to be able to to know that so that's something that's really important for me and the last one is something also you know like while in mali something to bring back i'm curious to know what is the lesson that I will learn this time around that I can bring back to Ottawa, to my Shambhala community, and how and I can also wait to see how this will affect my practice. Just how will I practice and how will I engage with you know the different beings that are we meet in those practices? For me, it's it's something that I'm looking forward to. I'm like, okay, how do I I connect with these people when I sit down? That's fantastic. One thing that I'm I'm kind of feeling more and more is that we have something as human beings that's really precious, uh, really important. And we tend to, you know, kind of like share it. I can share it with you, like how to be human. We do it one-on-one. But I think more and more, I think it's about time. These precious things that we think is individual, we need to bring it at kind of like in a social context. And what I mean by that is like, the way that I care for myself and I care for my community and I care for people that are close to me, I think I cannot, we, I, and we in the world cannot, if we want to do something good, that care, we have to bring it out to everybody. We have to care for everybody and we can't exclude anybody. That's what I'm understanding and I'm seeing more and more because the moment we exclude other people, what we do is that we say, it's okay if you're being abused, it's not my job. It's okay if you're poor, if you don't go to school, it's not my job. But we have to start caring more. And the simple reason I'm saying that, and what I've seen is that I've seen people here who are 15 years old, 16, and they basically have no education. That's setting them up for poverty for their lives, right? And, but at the same time, I see the potential in them. I'm not going to be able to bring them to school, but I do want to be uh, surrounded by a kind of world where people care and people can do something because something has to be done if we allow a lot of people to be without education, without health care, then we would allow ourselves to have more migration, more wars, more terrorism. Because it's so easy, if you're 15 and you're walking on the street and there's nothing for you to do, it's so easy for you to turn around when somebody say, come work for me, come work as a bodyguard today, and tomorrow I say, well, now I want you to kill some of the people. So my aspiration is for, it sounds new agey, but the caring that we have is to bring that outside, to demand that, 
in kind of our political setting, we have to because the world just needs that. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. It's really touching hearing your story, Tajumo, particularly having known you for a long time. I don't think I've really, I don't think you've really ever told me your story before. So it's like, it proves why I already had a strong connection with you. <laughs> like, of course, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> the truth is, I need people like you. I, yeah. I need to be surrounded like, with people like you. We, we need this because we're like at the junction in this world where you know, we, we can all benefit from each other. And Absolutely. I know we have our personal lives, but this is really necessary because if you, uh, I talk about everything, I didn't even mention the environment, which is another issue here, but you know, there's so much to do. Everybody's needed. So, yeah. 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 Well, I need people like you. I feel like I'm not, I can't do what I do without people like you in my life who inspire me as well. So that's, it's a, it's a good feedback loop. <laughs> Mokani diana mola kasi netana diana mo maluya saramala maluya umandiye amama Mokani diana mola kasi netana diana mo maluya saramala maluya umandiye amama Amama, I don't be full of it. So, hi again. Hi there. We've just been listening. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just share a little of what, um, you know, sparked for you in listening to Jujumo. Sure. I think that the point in the in the interview that drew me in the most was when Tajumo described the interaction that he was having with this woman and her husband and how their differences in religious backgrounds or sort of like the, the cultural pieces that could have easily made this a really difficult interaction. Mm. Tajumo just was just present and listened and appreciated and respected where those folks were coming from without it being this really contentious interaction or this really antagonistic interaction. He just seemed to be so open to them, to to the other person, right? And I guess in some ways I just think about how it was such a good model of how things can go when we are open to the other. And Mm -hmm. we're always sort of like colliding into each other. And there are so many differences that can get in the way. And this, what he modeled was is that the differences actually don't get in the way. If I just, if I'm just patient and I just listen, yeah. I thought that was really profound. Yeah. What about you? You talked about at the beginning how inspired you were by this interview. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit more about even sort of like on this side of the interview, what, 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 what's stirring in you? Mostly is that his sense of presence, it, it's like 
what I do works. <laughs> like the work that I do with others, you know, with leaders in the world to help them be present. He demonstrates that that not just happens, but that 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 it works. I almost can't even say it. It's like I'm so excited about it that it's like I'm stumbling over my words because it's it's kind of rare. Yeah. To find a living example of someone who's actually out there in the world uh-huh. doing really hard work, <laughs> but from a platform of presence. Uh-huh. It is. From a sense of blossoming into who they are as a human being that allows others to blossom. Uh-huh. You know? I feel like the rarity of that is, well, it's too rare. And that's, uh, you know, <laughs> again, why <laughs> why this podcast? Yeah. Why this podcast now? I mean, I keep coming back to that. But I, I do feel like these interviews are, are really showcasing, right. you know, what I think is most important. Right. That we show up and we be present with yeah. other people. And he really did. I mean, he really did just talk about that in so many different instances it was really though in that instance with that woman and her husband i was just really struck by that and and also inspired by it like you were talking about um thinking about the work that i do but even just to like in everyday life how do you show up and be openness to the possibility of a collision with another person and then just waiting to see what happens from that go do that go be present go be open go listen Allow yourself to collide into another and see what happens. Right. Be gentle. Be gentle. But be open. Be gentle and be open. Yeah. Today's episode would not have been born without the support of quite a number of people. First of all, we'd love to thank Tejuma Uguma for sharing his insights with us. He has graciously offered to join us again for a sneak peek into his life four years later, so stay tuned for that bonus conversation soon. Secondly, we'd like to thank each of the following folks who are superb friends of the podcast and have assisted in numerous ways, from editorial feedback to commentary to behind-the-scenes plotting to connecting genuine with their networks. Carlton Green, PhD of the University of Maryland, Christy Hausler of Team Podcast, Lee Purcell of Lightspeed Publishing, Jim Infantino of Slab Media, Eric Forbes and Fleet Mall of Best Year of Your Life Summit, Sean Cholde, strategic communications expert, and my close personal strategic partner and friend. Thank you. Genuine would not be what it is without you. For audio editing, I'd like to thank my sweet hubby, Scott Robbins, for patiently taking care of our daughters, Odessa and Indigo, while I spent far too many hours editing and recording and writing and creating this whole thing. Thanks to Team Podcast for stitching the episodes together. For their generous gifts of music and sound, we thank Jim and Fentino for Habits and Plans, Jalikba Sumano for A Photo, Tejumo Ugoma for recording sounds off the streets of Bamako, Mali four years ago, and for Jonathan Souza's End of Time. Thank you to those who lent their voices to say the word genuine and to Sarah Kimball for defining genuine for us. Thank you to the inspiring, generous, and wonderful patrons and community members of Genuine. We would not be here without each and every one of you. If you are interested in joining the conversation, you can reach out to me at sarahlipton at genuinenetwork.org. If you would like to join our growing community at Genuine, be part of our conversation, learn from some of the world's most amazing hearts and minds, and contribute to the podcast, join us at genuinenetwork.org. We'll see you there. Now more than ever, is the time to listen, spark, and ignite.
this is Dr. Sarah Kimball. What does the word genuine mean to you? Genuine to me means uh, actually connecting from from what is going on in my heart at any given moment and from my actual real experience uh, as opposed to my, my concept of what I should be thinking or doing or being or feeling. Um, you know, genuine is is coming from nowness and coming from my actual felt experience. Mm, thank you so much for joining us on this listening journey today and for listening all the way to the end. I'm wondering, what nuggets of wisdom did you learn today? What is particularly plucking at the cords of your heart? Are you looking for other amazing humans to connect with on your listening journey? Then I invite you to join us at Genuine, an online community dedicated to the journey of being, sparking, and igniting our true impact in the world. It's easy to join, and you'll find a free 22-day positive mind challenge just waiting for you. Come on over and give yourself the opportunity to just be and be welcomed into a loving community. Go to GenuineNetwork.org. And we'll see you here at the podcast next week for a gorgeous reflection on how meditation can support us in working with self-compassion and empathy for others with the renowned Sharon Salzberg. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Genuine wherever you get your podcasts. Now... Go be who you are.